So I went downstairs, and I don't know why I was in my locker. I had the locker open, and I'm standing with my hands on my locker, and all of a sudden I feel something down my back, and it was like someone had just taken their finger or elbow and just gone zip. So I turned around, and as I'm looking around, in my mind's eye, and it was so vivid, I saw a guy with the big handlebar mustache, the old LAPD cop hat, and he looks at me, and I swear to God, he looked at me and says, get out. Nestled in the historic neighborhood of Northeast Los Angeles, in Highland Park sits the Los Angeles Police Museum. Built in 1925, this museum was originally known as the Highland Park Police Station, and since 1983 it was closed down and then finally turned into the Los Angeles Police Museum in the early 2000s. Now this museum is quite unique as it's filled with history unique exhibits and little surprises, but it seems that it has a couple of permanent visitors. Now, according to the employees of the museum, it appears as though some of the police officers that used to work there still haven't left, and they're still trying to keep the peace with whatever's on the second floor connected to one of the exhibits. So let's take a ride to Highland Park and join Highly Weird Paranormal as we respond to a possible code two at the Los Angeles Police Museum. Hey guys, welcome to Hollywood Paranormal, episode 75. In order to begin, we need to go back. And before we head into this investigation, obviously without Bryce, because we all know how he likes to investigate from the comforts of his own home, we're going to have him share a little history about the LAPD Museum. Take it away, Bryce. The Los Angeles Police Museum was formerly known as the Los Angeles Police Historical Society, or LAPHS. LAPS. In 1989, the LAPS was founded with the mission of creating a world-class museum that would display the rich history of the Los Angeles Police Department, the LAPD. The department has played a large role in the development of the city of Los Angeles, and the history displayed at the museum not only reflects the numerous contributions from its beginning on March 10, 1869, but also the many adversities experienced on the road to becoming the most professional police department in the world. The museum is located in the Highland Park Police Station, built in 1925. The station was closed in 1983 and subsequently ravaged by vandal, arson fires, and water damage. Since then, it has been salvaged and restored by the Historical Society to its original Renaissance Revival style and is a registered National Historic Landmark. But you know where there is history, there might also be hauntings. It appears as though the museum plays host to quite a few entities. 
According to the museum's staff, there have been a few apparitions of former police officers and criminals that inhabit the offices and jail cells. Could these be connected to the museum or to the artifacts that they carried? Who knows? But if you know me, you know that I absolutely avoid all police stations, any standing water, and being outside of a five mile radius within any Starbucks. So I will be in the car watching the investigation from afar. The time is 5.05 p.m. I've just gotten settled and seated in one of the meeting rooms of the museum. On my left is Misha, who is one of the main assistants, and across from me is Lori, who's another assistant of the museum. I'm also joined by my friends who are going to participate in this investigation tonight, Matt Lytle and Chris Califf, both from the Discovery Channel show of Ghost Loop and the hosts of Booze and Bros podcast. On the right of me is Mikey and his wife, Sherry. They're also paranormal investigators, and they have their own group, Dark Horse Paranormal. Now, what they're also very popular for is their investigation with Ghost Adventures at the March Time Museum. Not only have they led investigations at the March Time Museum, but they also have led investigations at the LAPD Museum. You see, Mikey knows the place like the back of his hand because Mikey used to be an officer when the museum used to be a functioning police station. But my biggest question is, what led Mikey to pursue his paranormal investigations with his wife, Sherry? And it kind of relates to why a lot of us are so intrigued and actually investigate the paranormal, because it started with an experience. You see, Mikey had an unusual experience while working at the police station, which is now the museum. Now my daughter, my daughter's a paranormal, okay, mm-hmm. Christine E. Case, and um, she she got uh, lupus really bad, so she can't go out and investigate because she said if you're sick, you don't want to do that. No, obviously not. But she had a little radio station stuff, and all she was growing up. I encouraged her. I bought her her equipment, and I'd get her this. I I didn't believe in it because being a cop, if I can't touch it, see it, taste it, smell it, doesn't exist. That's that's our just the nature of the beast. Right. So in 1978, I'm working on what we call Morning Watch, which is graveyard shift, and I'm here. And my partner had court all day. It was like Wednesday. So about uh, 1, 1 30 in the morning, he says, Mike, I'm going to go to sleep. So we'd come in, and we have our misdemeanor holding tanks here, and we had beds in there. No, no prisoners, so it was cool. So we'd crash in there. Well, our locker room's downstairs. Mm-hmm. So I went downstairs, and I don't know why I was in my locker. I had the locker open, and I'm standing with my hands on my locker, and all of a sudden I feel something down my back, and it was like someone had just taken their finger or elbow and just gone zip. So I turned around, and as I'm looking around, in my mind's eye, and it was so vivid, I saw a guy with a big handlebar mustache, the old LAPD top hat, and he looks at me, and I swear to God, he looked at me, he says, get out. <laughs> oh my God. I didn't move fast enough. I came up the stairs, and the desk sergeant sits right there, desk officer. And I sat next to the desk officer, and I was kind of quiet. And I'm trying to figure out what I just experienced when my sergeant walks in. He goes, Mikey, are you okay? I said, why do you ask, sergeant? He goes, look, you're seeing a ghost. Five minutes later, six of us are down with their guns out looking for this thing. <laughs> so, and we never found it. I never experienced it again. Um, 
but it was very vivid and his get out was just get out and I couldn't move fast enough and I'm armed <laughs> and I, but I got the hell out of there you probably had his old locker <laughs> either that or it was bad timing on my part whatever it was and when, um, when, when that happened like what was the vibe what was the feel of the room when that happened I mean, oh the whole... dark it's like if you ask me it's like I could just see him and everything else was dark I didn't see anything <laughs> When he said get out, I affixed to the stairs and I just, I mean, I, I don't even remember stepping on those stairs. But the sergeant saw that I'd been a little excited and he picked it up. And can, can you give us the best like verbal representation of like how he said it, like angrily, sad? Yeah, no, he was mad. It, it, I, was really, I was really focused on his mouth because of the mustache, but it was the get out was just get out. <laughs> and I, I, I was gone. So you felt very threatened. Like, it wasn't a get out or else, you know, I'm going to get mad. It was a get out or you're going to get hurt. Because you said you felt the thing on your back, right? Yeah, it was like, he got, he got my attention. When I turned around, it was like, in my mind's eye, there it is. This it's is right there, right here. Now, I had a similar experience at the museum. We were asked to leave. What happened was, we're talking to a female, and she stops talking to us, and the paranormal asked her, would you like us to leave? And a male voice said, yes. So we left, and it kind of flashed me back a little bit. Well, now, fast forward to a month, two months later, we're doing another investigation, mm -hmm. and we're in our mezzanine, and you'll see it in the episode, remember, the mezzanine where the kids are, and we were told to get out. And I said, no, but not just no, hell no. I'm the security <laughs> manager, we're staying here. And that was in the episode. Mm -hmm. Well, I came to work on that Tuesday, and there was a sulfur smell following me all around. Oh. And so I called the paranormal, and he said, Mikey, you gotta go apologize, you, you upset something. So I apologized in every urinal. I went to every airplane. I went, and if they say get out, I'm the first Mexican out the door. <laughs> I don't mess with that anymore. Mikey certainly has had quite a few experiences, both at the LAPD Museum and the March Time Museum as well. But throughout my interviewing and even the investigation, you'll even notice it, that the theme kind of changed. It took a turn. I've heard about this in many forums and talks, and I've read about it in many articles, about attachments, about items holding energy and attachments. You see, it's not just the property in the building, it's also what's inside. It certainly shows that you shouldn't mess with something that has or holds some sort of energy around it. It's a good thing I have Matt and Chris here with me in this investigation since they have experiences when it comes to dealing with trigger objects. And can those objects trigger what's already in that environment even more? In Mikey's story at the March Time Museum, it's more than just the building at times. It could even be an individual that can trigger something but doesn't want to be bothered. Let's listen to a story. When I made security manager at the museum, people start telling me things. They hear things, they smell things, and I'm like, oh, whatever. So I cleaned up my office, and I mean, I moved everything. It took me about three weeks, and the office is about, about a little bit bigger than this, and I had to move all kinds of paraphernalia, collections, and all that stuff. I came to work on a Tuesday, and I smelled a real bad uh, foul odor. It sounded like something had died. We have double walls at the museum, so something could have crawled in and stuff and died there. Mm -hmm. We checked it, we couldn't find anything, so it was bad Tuesday, bad, by Thursday our eyes are watering. So I, I, I thought, you know, call, call Christy. So I called my daughter and she said, Dad, what'd you do in the office? And I told her, she goes, okay, here's what I want you to do. I said, okay. So I brought the staff in, 
the odor was still there. The staff left and I stood in the middle of the office and I said, whatever you're looking for is still here. I would not have disrespected you or moved that object without your permission. And I totally apologize. But if you look for what you're looking for, you'll find it. We came back from lunch, the odor was gone. I moved the trigger object. I moved something somewhere else. And my daughter said, Dad, go in there and tell it it's still here. First thing, did you throw anything away? Uh, <laughs> that's our forte. We're, that's something we're very familiar with. Okay. Trigger objects. We, I moved the trigger object and I found it again. And the order was gone. Wow. Did you ever like, be able to zero down what the trigger object was exactly? No, it was military oriented. In fact, sure will attest to this. Our, our whole thing is military oriented. Now we've got the national, or we've got the cemetery, veteran cemetery across the freeway. So that could bring it in. And then we've got that thing also. Um, one incident, you know, well, one incident we had, I always tell my daughter, hey, we're going, I, I told her I'm coming here. And so I always tell her we're gonna have an investigation, a public or in-house. So one day I told her we had a bunch of gothics. Pierce and Tats is still were coming. She said, Dad, you're gonna have one of your best investigations. I said, why? She goes, they're near death, the ghosts just love them. I said, okay. <laughs> Yeah, they I, might take I don't know how I feel about that being tattooed. In yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just telling the story, right? Ghost, ghost laughing too. So then <laughs> we're aboard the airplane, and um, I have one of the, the our guests, is, she's holding the, the, the speaker and the spirit box, and it's, it's going. And I have my back to her, and I'm looking at the back of the airplane because they had all seen something, and all of a sudden I hear my name, Mike, Mikey, Mikey. And I turn, and she's looking at the speaker. And she's looking at me. I said, I'm here, who is it? No response. I'm here, who is it? No response. She goes, I heard something. I said, what'd you hear? I heard Bob and training. Well, Bob Jarvis and I work training division of the LAPD together. He's buried across the street. And she doesn't know me from Adam. She didn't know Bob. Now this is nothing I'd go to his family with, but the fact that she said Bob and training. And I'm like, okay. I mean, I'm getting the sense, especially from your daughter, that she has a, an ability. Oh, she does. And Does she get that from you? Because it seems like you attract it, too. And it yeah, my, my, my wife, the good, the good ex, my wife, um, ex-wife, she um, doesn't have that. My daughter does. Okay. And, you know, it, it's funny because my daughter asked me sometimes, she goes, Dad, what do you feel sometimes in the street? I said, oh, we hear something. It's a sense or something. Like, Don't go that way. Go that way. Stop where you're at. You better go for your gun. That guy's a bad guy. Request a backup. So I feel things. Now, in the museum, I don't like to be alone because I feel things. I feel the goosebumps. I, well, the other day, I was the last one out of the museum, and I went to clock out, and I felt it right here. And I turned and I said, no. No, you stay right here. Between these two, I guess, between this establishment and the other establishment, which of the two are the most active? Well, when I'm here, we had an incident, and the girls were all here. Um, I went up to the, we went to the SLA shootout. Okay, you'll see it's upstairs, and it's got all the memorabilia these guys were wearing. Their guns, uh, their uniforms, and all this good stuff. And I don't want to say anything, but I said, and the girls quote me if, if I said, I said, you know, my friends were out there. Fuck them. That's what he says. I said, you shot at my friends. Fuck them. He, this guy's still there. He's, he's talking this stuff. And we got it on tape and stuff. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I, from now on, we go up there, I just shut up. Slight edit on Mikey's story. He meant to say the North Hollywood shootout exhibit. Now Lori, the assistant, tells her tale. When they were here investigating, 
investigating, it was our first investigation, mm -hmm. and we were going through the jail on the other side, and as we're walking through, I keep going like this to my head, oh, like yeah. something's, and I'm, what the heck is this? And then I think Mikey has the question, do you know anyone who works here? I don't know if it was you or Gary who asked, and I'm still busy trying to figure out what's going on with the top of my head, <laughs> and I was getting kind of chilled, and all of a sudden, they all turned to me and said, it said Lori, and I'm, what? Who do you know that works here? And something said Lori, which is me. Yeah, we had another one like that uh, right out at the uh, memorial wall, if you remember, too. Mm -hmm. uh, where they they answered about I know a you. lot of people on Memorial okay. Wall were no longer with us. So that's eerie. That's eerie. But they've had a lot of uh, sensations, touching, feelings. It's not necessarily all good. Uh, <laughs> we know that the the gentleman, at, at, there's at least one of the guys that's uh, here from the uh, from the Hollywood shootout, and we don't know for sure who it is, but I think it's Emil. Emil, yeah. That's that's probably still here. Is that from the North Hollywood shootout? Yeah, yeah. I live yeah. five minutes from there. Yeah. If you're living in Los Angeles during 1997, that you know all about the North Hollywood shootout. And if you were living in North Hollywood during that time, then you most certainly heard what was going on. As the story goes, it was a confrontation between two heavily armed and armored bank robbers by the name of Larry Phillips Jr. and Emil Matasurano, and members of the Los Angeles Police Department in North Hollywood. It happened on February 28th of 1997, where two bank robbers entered a Bank of America in North Hollywood, and of course, a shootout ensued. 12 police officers and eight other civilians were severely injured and numerous vehicles and other properties were damaged or destroyed by nearly 2,000 rounds of ammunition fired by the robbers and police. It was one of the most intense shootouts in LAPD history. The aftermath led both robbers to be dead on the scene and also it contributed to the motivating of arming of rank and file police officers in Los Angeles and nationwide with semi-automatic, selective fire, and even automatic rifles. And it turns out that the LAPD Museum has an exhibit dedicated to the North Hollywood shootout. And it holds everything. Everything that belonged to the robbers, from the clothes to the watches, and even the gloves and ammunition and weapons that they carried that day with them. Not only that, they also have the cars and even the robbers' cars that were a part of the shootout. And like I mentioned before, is it possible that items can carry so much energy and attachment? And according to the assistants and Mikey and even Sherry, it most likely does. Considering that the assistants have had experiences with a specific entity that may be connected to the exhibit. You see, a while back during an investigation, they had a psychic do a reading of the museum. She instantly picked up an entity that was very towering, very menacing, and very negative. She believed this entity was connected to the exhibit, 
and loved intimidating the females that worked in the office of a museum. Misha in particular has had many experiences with this one entity. Uh, there's the North Hollywood shootout exhibit. And one day I brought my old roommate to go look at the exhibit. And when we walked in the room, all of a sudden we felt we got headaches and lightheaded, um, dizzy. And then we went, did you feel that? And I just, we both felt at the same time, something like almost brushing, starting at the top of our head, mm -hmm. all the way down our back to our legs at the same time. And we went, whoa, like, and we rushed out of there. And, um, and then we started feeling better after that, but it was just a collective experience at the same time. And, um, there's definitely, um, a spirit in there. And I've been told by a medium that that one of the spirits in the North Hollywood shootout stands at my desk behind me all day. And I always feel something kind of brushing, Ugh. brushing me and lightheaded and... That's does he my... does he do it on purpose to get your attention or to scare you or intimidate yeah, you? Yeah, I was told it's because um, he thrives on fear, so it's kind of he's trying to bully me. And so one day I went in and I just said, back out of my space. Mm -hmm. And he knocked over a water canteen on my desk, and then I never felt anything in there again. Man. And since then... You cleaned your space. Yes. You, mm -hmm. Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, I mean, I'm going into that room and the, the, the size of his clothes is very baggy. He's very big. Mm -hmm. And I could tell like just the height of that mannequin. He's a big guy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I could, I could feel like that sense of intimidation. Yeah. So you guys carry a lot of their personal items. Like this is actual mm -hmm. clothes, pants, shirts, jackets that they wore yeah, on that day is. in uh -huh. February of 1997. Mm -hmm. Jeez. And if you ever see the exhibit, you'll notice that Emil is a pretty tall and very large man based on the size of his clothes. So they instantly think and believe that that could be him. But later on in the investigation, it kind of takes a bit of a wild turn. And we soon find out that it may not be Emil. After our roundtable introductions and even discussions about the museum and its paranormal association, we gather our equipment and prep for a tour. Bob introduces himself. He is the chairman of the museum and an active police officer who's ready for his retirement. And then I'm also greeted by Misha, who approaches me with a very interesting book. It's a book called LAPD 53 by James Elroy, and it goes over the most intense history of the LAPD crime scenes of 1953, complemented with actual crime scene photos. She mentions a story, a particular chapter in the book that is labeled Baby Elroy. This story is actually connected to the first thing that you encounter when you enter the museum. It's the cells. Now, according to this chapter, it seems that a person by the name of Manuel Basil, aka Manny the Molester, age 26, was a lizard-like individual from Lincoln Heights. LAPD popped him on Albion Street and Avenue 17. But it was the bystanders that eyeballed him mauling a poor 15-year-old girl. That girl then told LAPD that Manny the Molester tried to get her to smoke a reefer. She refused. Manny beat her and tore her clothing and attempted to rape her. Manny is then arrested, booked, and thrown into jail, into one of the cells. 
Now, the following day, Manny is then later found dead, apparent suicide. It was even rumored that the LAPD cops that booked him were the ones that were responsible for his death and made it look like a suicide. Now, ever since then, females who pass by his cell have heard what sounds like cat calling. They feel like they're being watched. They feel very uncomfortable. And some have even claimed to hear heavy breathing. Bob goes into the story at the beginning of our tour of the museum. Don't do this. But as you go down this hallway, and we have two cells. These two cells are uh, felony cells. Mm-hmm. And uh, she said that she gets comments from people, and we get people from all over, very consistent that they're always having issues when they go to either feel presence or that um, when they ta- try to take a, a photo or something, mm-hmm. and something messes up. And very consistent. Well, we didn't tell her that uh, we had somebody that had committed suicide over there. Yes. So we get those things. Interesting artifacts. We do have uh, things about uh, Charles Manson. And we have um, a lot of his stuff. We have uh, Marilyn Monroe. Uh, we have certain things from uh, anything to do with her death, her investigation. We have all, the, all that stuff here. Those are not uh, for public view. So you can probably, if you want to walk in the room where all that stuff is stored, um, but let me take a look because um, some of that stuff is uh, confidential and it's controlled by uh, the city attorney and so they don't want us to release certain photos. Of course, okay. we figured, yeah. 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 But let's see if you can get something in there and if, if so, then we can throw yes. some sheets on. <laughs> I must interject here, but pardon my French. Holy shit. We are going to be able to be in a room filled with actual evidence boxes, evidence that were collected from these crime scenes, these infamous crime scenes of the Charles Manson LaBianca and Sharon Tate case, along with the Marilyn Monroe case. This museum literally has everything, especially ghosts. We want to make sure that we're allowed in there. We yeah. don't want to walk into some place that we're not allowed. So mm-hmm. we just want to make sure that we don't step on anybody's parents. feet. And down there, yeah. yeah. You just tell us where to go and where not to go. So exactly. we're just we're excited to be here, and it's a pleasure. We're honored to be here. You're very much honored. All the stuff that's here, it's incredible. I'm going to interject here once more. After reviewing this audio, I think I may have come up with an EVP. I'm going to play it real quickly and tell me if you hear it. It sounds like breathing and then a man mumbling, but here it is. It's a pleasure. We're honored. It's a pleasure. We're honored. This recording was actually next door to the cells. Could this be Manny the molester? I distinctly remember standing on the opposite side away from Bob, Chris, and even Matt. No one was near me. We continue with the tour throughout the first level of the museum. We go through sections of the museum that are dedicated to certain parts of the history of LEPD and Los Angeles. You go through a section of the riots, natural disasters, and then all of a sudden we're taken to another room of cells. These are the orderly cells. And right across from it is a display case of everything of Los Angeles in the 80s, including pictures of Richard Ramirez. And then Bob drops another big surprise on us. So um, this gel over here was for the orderlies at one time. We just added these panels. I actually arrested him 
uh, Richard Ramirez. You arrested uh, Richard Ramirez? Now, if you watch the, the Netflix, there's a, a booking photo that they use for promo. I actually took that photograph, believe it or not. I see. I still keep it. I have it in my office. Put, put it in there for years, and my assistant, she looked at it, and she goes, I've been looking at this thing for like 10 years. Can't believe that uh, you had it. So that's the original photo that I took that I always kept with me. Oh my God. Uh, and then this is the, the promo photo that they used for, uh, for the Netflix series. Yeah. Now at that time, we didn't know who he was, so they just had his sketch. Mm -hmm. And then once they found out, um, they posted this. So I arrested him um, in um, December of 84. And he was over in Brentwood, just north of Sunset, over by where OJ lives. And um, he was driving down the, uh, the, the residential area. It was a really old 74 Ford Pinto. And he would stop. He was like looking around at a house and then go a little further. And it was just zigzagging. So uh, we had another car that was in the area and they got a hold of us and they asked us if we could uh, back him up because they wanted to stop this guy. So we do, we pull him over, get him out of the car and then um, my partner handcuffs him. I run up to the car and I cleared it, make sure there's nobody else in there. And I see that he used a screwdriver to punch the ignition to get it going. So it's an unreported stolen. So we probably cause booked him for Grand Theft Auto. And he had uh, one prior on his uh, record. Mm -hmm. So I took him to the station and then, um, now back then you had a, and he knows this, you had to put all the numbers in there. So I put the booking number, put the date 12-12-84 and, uh, and then fingerprinted him and then uh, processed him. So, that was, so then the judge lets him out. Well, he gets a hold of us that uh, is it Monday or Tuesday. This is on a weekend. And he gives us this lecture about uh, pulling him over. And he said, uh, and I, I regret not going back and talking to the guy, but the, he said, uh, you know, I read the report and you stopped him because he had broken tail light and unsafe lane change. And he says, I see these reports all the time. And all of a sudden there's guns and drugs and this and that. And the reason why he stopped him is because he's a Hispanic guy in an affluent white neighborhood. And if he gets into an argument with his wife, he should be able to drive any or girlfriend. He, he can drive anywhere in the city just to blow off steam and cool off and not be bothered or hassled by the police. So I'm going to let him out, no bail, uh, while he's waiting for his prelim, and then we'll figure it out later. <laughs> so that was in December. Uh, bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> so he killed, like, I think he had three more families that he killed. Yeah. And, he, and he, he raped a bunch of kids. And yeah. so it was August of... Uh, 85, I believe, that mm -hmm. uh, they found his fingerprint, or the guy's fingerprint off of uh, a mirror or something. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah. And then, um, you know, they, they went on the database, and that was the latest photo, so they posted it, and then they, he got recognized. I think he was trying to get on a bus or something in back east, um, I mean, East L.A. Yeah. yeah. They caught him, and he's trying to steal another yeah. car. Yeah. yeah. They ganked up on him. Yeah, his people ganged up on him. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Diablo. It's, also, it's also a story of policing, and LAPD's always been proactive, and so that's what we're to do. We're, we're going to look at the guy, he looks suspicious, and that's what you're paying us to do, to be able to sleep at night and then, you know, check out who this guy is. And then you have the other side that says, hey, you know what, uh, you're overly aggressive and you're violating his right. And he's... Now, 
mind you, me, my partner and I were looking at each other like, you know, this judge is lecturing us about uh, police stopping minorities, and here we got two minorities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it didn't make any sense. <laughs> but he was so biased towards us, he didn't look at us, but he looked at, 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 at us as police officers right. as an institution. Right. Which to me was like mentally like stressful. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> come on, guy, you know. So well, I can't. I'm I'm racist for stopping this guy. Anyway, so that's my story on him. That was quite an amazing story. Bob was actually one of the officers behind that infamous photograph, the mugshot of Richard Ramirez. So now I know that that was the first time he was arrested, and it's kind of unsettling and disturbing to know the horrific chain of events that would follow after that picture was taken. And for those who are not familiar with Richard Ramirez, Richard Ramirez was a American serial killer, rapist, kidnapper, pedophile, and burglar. His highly publicized home invasions and even murder crime spree terrorized the residents of the greater Los Angeles area and later the residents of the San Francisco Bay area from June of 1984 until August of 1985. Prior to his capture, Ramirez was dubbed the Valley Intruder, and then later, the Night Stalker by the news media. The tour continues to the second level of the museum. Now, this is where it gets really interesting and very fascinating, especially for me as a costume designer. We're taken through an area where they have all of the police uniforms from centuries past on display, especially the very, very first one, the very first LAPD police uniform from the 1800s with the very first batch. And they also have the very first policewoman uniform on display from 1901. Then we're taken through another area where we see actual display cases with uniforms used from Dragnet. And then we're taken through another area where it's all dedicated to infamous shootouts, especially the SLA Patty Hearst shootout. And this particular room is very interesting too because it also holds all of the weapons that belong to the SLA organization. In awe of everything that I am absorbing and witnessing in these displays and these exhibits of the museum, I walk into a very dimly lit room. At first I wasn't told what the room was and then instantly I feel this wave of anxiety creeping in. My palms are getting a little sweaty. My breathing is a little heavy, and my heart is really racing for some reason. Misha finally turns on all the lights in this room, and I gasp as I am instantly greeted by two very scary-looking mannequins dressed up in civilian clothes, carrying military-grade weapons, wearing ski masks. And then Misha tells me, this is our North Hollywood shootout exhibit, and this is everything that was involved in that shootout. Everything that was worn and carried by the two robbers on February 28th of 1997. And it made sense as to why I was feeling the way I did. I am then greeted by Bob and the rest of the crew as Bob goes into detail about the shootout. Doing a lot of bank robberies. And um, they were doing it on a Friday. They knew the, uh, the, the delivery schedule for the banks. So um, the FBI put out a notice to all the banks saying, hey, these guys are active 
and they're out there robbing banks, maybe you want to get security or something. The of A said, eh, what we're going to do instead of uh, forking out money for security, uh, instead of delivering 800,000 in the morning on Fridays, we'll do 400 in the morning and then 400 in the afternoon. So these guys pull up um, to the bank in North Hollywood and this is their actual garb that they used, the actual equipment that they used. Oh, and uh, as they're putting this stuff on, we got a unit that looks over and says, holy smokes, these guys are gonna rob the bank. So they go inside uh, to rob the bank and they get the 400. Well, they're saying, hey, we're kind of light here. Where's the rest of the money? Because of that, they were in there longer than they normally stay. And that allowed the officers that were outside to get back up and set up a perimeter. So when they came out, and they did uh, do some shooting uh, inside. Uh, they were very mad. They started shooting up the place and yeah, trying to kill everybody. There was a film, like a, I think it was the early 2000s that came out based on that shooting. Yeah, It was really it's, intense. Yeah, yeah, it's an older film. Um, but you can find, I think it's on Netflix or Amazon Prime. I can't remember the name of it. But, yeah, they, yeah, they have a good one. We, we actually have one that we show here uh, when we want to have it on right now. So at that time, uh, when he was on the job, uh -huh. we had an Ithaca shotgun. Uh, we had a, a simple uh, five-shot 38. And we had just transitioned to, and not everybody had one, is the Beretta, but we had the 38s. And, uh, and th this is it. So the only bullet, I mean, yeah, the only bullets that were hitting them was from this um, 9mm, but with, with their vest, it, it didn't do anything. And then the shotgun didn't even come close to uh, reaching them. And that's the rest of the weapons over there that uh, they uh, were using against us. Uh, we have their car in the back. The first officer's uh, vehicle that saw shot up is in the back. Uh, we commandeered a um, armored car truck that's uh, here, uh, donated to us. One of them got shot uh, in the leg and bled out. The other one, uh, when you look at the film, he actually had a stovetop. And the stovetop is just the, the, the round goes up halfway and when the slide comes back, it gets caught. So when you look down the barrel, it looks like that. Yeah. Um, and then we have some of his artifacts. We have his, uh, their ID, the passports and stuff that's oh. in our archives. That's, a, that's so crazy. But this room gets uh, Gets a activity. lot of activity. That's yeah. what we were told, yeah. Turn around and this one that right here is looking at me. I'm not going to lie, that exhibit is definitely very, very interesting and very intense, especially those two mannequins. It's like they're looking straight at you every time you walk into that exhibit. Now, I'm sure some of you might be thinking, are they glorifying that robbery? No, it's so much a part of LA history, especially the LAPD history, and it definitely changed the way that the LAPD approach these types of robberies now. We are then led to another very important exhibit. And this one I've definitely read about, and this one is of Robert Stewart, or Police Officer Stewart, who was the first African-American police officer to serve LAPD. And unfortunately, on May 10th of 1900, a young female falsely accused Officer Stewart of rape. And during his criminal prosecution, the city voted to fire him before he was even given a jury trial. In two trials, the jury found Officer Stewart was innocent and the accuser's allegations were demonstrably false. Officer Stewart was quoted saying, if I were to meet my God in the next minute, I would swear that I have not harmed that young girl. And it was definitely true. 
Stewart never returned to the department and he was never offered his badge. He worked so hard for. And as of February 24th of 2021, the Los Angeles Police Commission unanimously voted to reinstate and honorably retire Officer Stewart. The museum has his badge number documented at number 40, currently for a Series 1 badge, and it was stamped on the challenge coins made in his honor. And then the moment we've all been waiting for, we're led into one hell of a room. And this room has all the case evidence boxes from the Charles Manson, LaBianca, Sharon Tate murders, and the Marilyn Monroe investigation. No. Here, let me out of the room. Yeah, so in this closet. No way. So all this is Manson stuff. Uh, in no here way. Are uh, mannequins and exhibits that were used um, to display the, the murder. Am I allowed to take a picture of this or no? Um, no. <laughs> just wanted to ask. Yeah. I, I, this then, is um, so, I'm, I hate fan grilling, but this is like history. How many boxes total? Here. 56? Mellon Monroe investigation. Oh my gosh. So here we have stuff that uh, is, yes. you know, I've gone through yeah. some of the stuff. And there is, uh, there are things in here that they... They take up they absolutely don't want uh, in public view, and some of it are her death uh, photos, which are in here. I I looked at them and I can see why you, you don't mm-hmm. want to see them. Uh, obviously not. What was it? I mean, did they automatically rule a suicide, or did they think there was foul play at first? So that's um, yeah, that's why they they did a big investigation because right. uh, they were thinking that the Kennedys were somehow involved, involved. and all that yeah. stuff. So all, that, there are things in here relating to that, but. So I right now, look at them. <laughs> these are basically sealed along with uh, the, the Bobby Kennedy stuff. We have certain things that aren't in, under control uh, by the uh, DA's office. All this is controlled by the DA. Mm-hmm. And um, LaBianca. Oh, my God. LaBianca. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there's stuff in there. There's personal items of theirs. Uh, just like here, Mellon Monroe, there's uh, personal items of hers in here. No way. Yeah. So how long do you guys keep these before you transition them back to families? Uh, no, well, this stays. Uh, this is all uh, right now. It's um, the way that it works. The uh, the DA's office will send over things uh, noteworthy like this uh, and um, notable cases. So we'll keep them. Um, once they they feel like in here, the reason why these are still uh, locked up because some of these uh, members are still alive and they're implicated in in uh, unsolved uh, murders. So once though, even though he's passed away, there's a few that are still around and there's still open cases. The shortish, hey, I remember that. I remember reading about that. Wow. Mm -hmm. Jeez. So uh, I've been uh, working with uh, the DA's office and uh, I was trying to get uh, um, Jackie uh, uh, Lacey to uh, start releasing uh, at least a partial uh, release of some of these things. Do you need an intern? (laughs) <laughs> they were uh we were working on a contract to release some of these things even some some items uh there are a few things that they allowed us to uh show uh but they actually one of their uh investigators checked it out and that returned them so all the items that are available they they have right now we, we haven't gotten them back uh so hopefully um once the dust settles with this new da uh we're gonna see if we can get some of the stuff uh, out there. I mean, 
this is source material. This isn't somebody researching by reading a book no. of somebody who wrote a book. This, this is, is factual. This is, this is factual. This is where you come. This is where you come. Same thing with Marilyn Monroe. This is know? true. There's a lot of people reading about her death and all the mysteries and stuff, and this is the actual stuff that's in here. That's like the truth. Like the, it's like the, the, the truth in like, physical form. The I'm like room. freaking out because it's like it's you're in Last here with one. history. Like little, literally, oh my God, I can't even talk right now. I'm like so tongue-tied. Tongue-tied is a phrase that we can use, but it was just unbelievable to be in a room with the actual and factual evidence of all those cases, especially the Marilyn Monroe investigation. After that amazing experience, they actually had saved the best for last. They take us to the lower depths, which is the basement. Now, the basement is very active, and according to Mikey and Sherry, this is where they collected some unusual EVPs, voice box sessions, and even unusual light anomalies that they'd captured with their cameras. Rooms here have like tremendous amount of stuff, too. I mean, we, we can spend a week going into each room. We get a lot of uh, activity here in this area where you're at, yeah. And uh, over here, if I remember correctly, I, I don't know what, uh, who's down here? Do we know what, uh... What, what spirit? Walt. Walt, the picture, the motor cop. Walt, and we've had Dave. Mm -hmm. yeah. Dave, uh, yeah. Officer Krebs is going to be another major, major character in this investigation, especially with what happens after, just days after this investigation. We'll get to that very soon. It turns out that Officer Krebs, whom they have his picture on display in the bottom level of this museum where they hold their meetings, is an entity that likes to make communication, especially with the SB7 box. Now, according to the museum, Officer Krebs was a motor officer. He was a part of the speed squad. And on March 28th of 1916, Krebs was leaving the station responding to a call in Highland Park, which was then largely rural farmland. And as Krebs rode south onto Avenue 20, where various railroad lines converged, a police vehicle or a police machine, believe it or not, that's what they were called back in the 1900s, was attempting to pass the slower-moving vehicle in the same vicinity. The police machine, driven by police chauffeur author Boycott, was returning to Eastside Station from a radio call. When Boycott passed on the right of a slower-moving vehicle, he actually collided with Krebs' motorcycle, which was traveling southbound on Avenue 20 near the railroad tracks. And this was some 40-plus years before motorcycle helmet use came into being. Now, as a result, Krebs suffered major injuries, including a fractured skull and hip, along with serious lacerations to his face. He was quickly taken to receiving hospital on First and Spring Streets, where police surgeons worked feverishly to save his life. Krebs succumbed to his injuries and became the first motor officer to be killed in a line of duty. And he also was the first LAPD officer to die in a traffic collision involving another police vehicle. He was only 23 years old, and he was survived by his 29-year-old wife and six-year-old son, Kenneth. And according to some of the assistants and even Sherry, who has conducted investigations on that bottom level, they've collected his name, Walter, and another one by the name of Dave. But it's Walter who seems to be occupying 
this whole entire space. We move further down into the basement, down a long hallway. It's very eerie, it's very dark. And Bob informs us that this used to be a shooting range. And then I remembered Sherry sharing something with me that she collected a very unusual EVP in one of her prior investigations. She said it sounded like gunshots being shot in this hallway. And sure enough, we get confirmation from Bob. This was uh, a shooting range uh, at one time when it was first okay, built. Okay, that does validate it then. Yeah. So there was a range here. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, this is it. So we were telling them earlier that on one of our investigations, we were discussing whether there was a shooting range here. And we got rat-a-tat-tat-tat-tat. Yep. I remember that. We all looked at each other and went, whoa. Can you repeat that? Rat-a-tat-tat-tat. They yeah. repeated it four times. Sounded just like automatic weapons. So fire. crazy. Well, then... So now you had a melody. There yep, was a shooting yep. range here. Yeah, I, I didn't know that, but yeah, so this was it. So Bob has confirmed that this location was used as a shooting range back when the museum was an active police station. Now let me tell you about Bob and his surprises. He then takes us to another room, and this is more of the uniform archival room. This is where a lot of the period uniforms from the LAPD are kept and also cataloged and taken care of. But what's so unique about this room is its safe and what is included in the safe. I'm I'm just going to let Bob surprise you guys with what he uh, told us while we entered that room. So we have several safes. We have uh, a rifle that was uh, made in France from uh, uh, 1789. So we got some older ones. Uh, this one, uh, we have uh, not only like a Tommy gun, but all of the Manson personal weapons, the murder weapons, everything that was used is, is in that. Uh, um, Can you repeat exactly what just you said? What, the Manson murder all the, all the Manson murder weapons are here, uh, including his personal weapons. I tell you, Bob and his surprises. But here's another discussion that was definitely brought up while we were standing there around that safe, perplexed, is that... A lot of the elements that they carry that belong to criminals within that museum have a lot of negative elements that surround it. Those weapons were used to harm, to kill. So a lot that is attached to that is being manifested in that museum in some way. But there's also another element there too. They carry a lot of items that belong to LAPD officers uniforms, badges, and even weapons. Things that were used to serve. Things that were used to protect. And we feel that there are two forms of elements there in that museum. One that protects, and one that wants to evoke fear, and possibly harm. And that's what we found out later on that night while doing our investigation. There's a yin and a yang, a good and a bad, a positive and a negative, and they're at constant odds with one another. So we begin our investigation in the basement. We decided to start our investigation right next to the shooting range in the room with the uniforms and the safe. We thought, let's work our way from the bottom to the top. Save the best for last. In the room with me is Mikey and his wife, Sherry, along with Misha and Laurie, who join us later on. 
I'm conducting an EVP session, so I'm using my voice recorder, and I have my EDI, or the Eddie. I use the temperature setting to see if whatever's in the room can manipulate the temperature to communicate with us, or even tap the EDI to see if it can communicate or make its presence known to us in some sort of fashion or way. Now, through my audio, after recording this EVP session, I didn't hear or find anything. But I remember in this recording, Sherry brought up a really good point. Remember when I said before there's a positive and a negative? They really believe that a meal is a negative. And here's Sherry's input on that. Well, we had one night where it seemed like a meal and company shut everybody down. Yeah. What? What do you mean? What? They wouldn't. uh, Somehow they were suppressing anybody from talking. Everybody else. Mm -hmm. And and that made me a little angry because we got coppers spirits here. They should stand up to those guys. So, but they've got some type of control or some type of um, what's the word I'm looking for? Authority. Suppression or authority. Yeah, that went pressure. up to sixty-seven point five, then to sixty-seven. So, yeah. Emil, are you here? Go to sixty-seven point five. Is that you, Emil? Go to sixty-seven point five. Let us know that you're here. It's popping it. Yep. Is the K2 over here going? Quiet. Okay, can you make the K2 over here with the lights go? Tammy, we've even tried not going there. Really? Yeah, we just avoid, uh, you know, Sherry had a couple ideas. One one time, it didn't really work, but we got a little more response, but she said, let's just ignore those guys tonight. Yeah. Which we did, and it was... Curious, do you think there's possibly, I don't know, at some points or times... There's your 67 Whoop. Yeah. That he might be suppressing whatever's balancing the negative of here? Of course, yeah. There's some good days where they can actually make communication, and I guess Emil's like, nope, today's my day. Yeah, maybe charge. there's just more negative energy than positive energy or something. Yeah, sometimes it has its it has its moments. When when I was at the Omen House, there'd be times where things would literally just out of nowhere start falling off the shelves, and other days where it's like, okay, it feels pretty decent, you know, like they'll be a little precocious, but other times it, it would be like, whoa, what what's in here, you know? Sixty seven point five. Yeah. And here I'll get I'll get Mikey. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. maybe all the yeah. cops went for donuts sure. at that time. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Bad cop, no donuts. You're saying that after some a certain person left working here, it got quieter in regards to the activity. We mean and this was oh wow, like saying yeah, because Con- Con- it uh, got like the more negative energy here. Yeah, a lot. Um, well, a certain person, like in living person, were, oh. they, were they negative? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, they feed off. They, they feed, feed off, off of that. Energy. Yeah. But, you know, in law enforcement, there's a lot of negative. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of negative. apprehension is is a form of negativism, because you're not sure. Anxiety. Yeah, anxiety. But as soon as you start saying things that are like code seven, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, oh, continue yeah. patrol, you don't like. Um, yeah. Shots fired, you don't yeah. like. Often no. needs help. False request and assistance. That stuff, that stuff creates a lot of energy. In I can't a lot of, imagine. Uh, yeah, and, and you know, you 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 be up here writing a report. All of a sudden, you hear a help call go out, and and you and the other thing too. 
I know your personality, I know your personality, and your personality, and your personality. So if Sherry's out there and I hear a request of backup, she's requesting assistance. Mm-hmm. And if I request an assistance, she's requesting help, but she won't say it. So you know your fellow officers and you know what you got to do in those type of situations. Um, if I hear two young coppers getting a radio call with shots fired, I'm going to start rolling because mm-hmm. they're young guys. Right. And, you know, as a supervisor, I would always make sure our guys were on top of things. But one thing, I, the mood I would always set at roll call as a watch commander or field sergeant, I'd always say to the rookies, what do we get to do tonight? And they look at me because they know what the answer is. We get to go on patrol, Sarge. I say, yeah, we do. So you put a positive pot of ring on it. Mm-hmm. That top floor, I think that's their dominant feature, that top floor. I don't think they like coming down because we get a lot of good response on the on the first floor and mm-hmm, down right. here mm-hmm. without negative stuff. Yeah. But you go up on that top floor and it's like all negative. Yep. You know, between the Tate and LaBianca thing mm-hmm. across to those guys and then all, all, all the negative stuff up there. Well, yeah. that's why Sandy mm-hmm. mentioned that there's an officer down here, a couple that keep... A meal like they can cross over to the down to the first floor, but nothing down here. Exactly, they can't cross here. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, He he, and there's the one that guards the front door. That's Mm -hmm. right. Okay, so if you're a police officer and down here, can you make it go red and raise the temperature? It's funny how I mean now that we've been in here a while. It should be getting warmer. Warmer. It shouldn't Mm -hmm. have went down. It shouldn't have gone down, right? And then it was bouncing. Oh, yeah. It knew, like, we were asking for it to do something. Can you give me but the it, K2 we'll put over here? There you go. Oh, look at it. Yep. I did. Yeah, that's it. Requested a backup, and you gave us one. Thank you. Three, you like that, don't you? Code three. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the backup, indeed. But there was something else that needed us as a backup. We ended up heading down the hall towards the meeting room, where we were greeted by Bob, Chris, and Matt. We wanted to conduct a ghost box session since Mikey and Sherry did claim that there is a lot of activity and it does like to communicate with people through the ghost box or an SB7 or even possibly through photography. Sherry has shared with me a couple photographs of some unusual light anomalies that they captured around that specific room. Now, according to Bob and even Mikey, there is a picture of Officer Walter Kreps that hangs up on that wall. They believe that he's there, probably the one that is more of the positive entity. But it turns out that Kreps actually had a message for us, and you're never going to believe what it was and what we ended up finding out. I ended up learning a lot about Kreps after this investigation, to which is why you heard the history before. But while sitting there, I really didn't know what happened with him how he passed, where, and if he comes back. And he certainly did. Here's what we found. Can you tell us how many people are in this room? Here. Who's here? Can you tell us your name? I heard Walter. Mm-hmm. That's what I heard too. Sam? Sam? Sammy? Is there a Walter here? Yes or no? Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Walter, how old are you? Walter, is that your picture up there? It's okay, Walter. Can you say hi? Oh, huh. man, male voice. Mm -hmm. What's that? Is there anything scary down in this basement area? Is there anything we should be worried about? Yes. Sorry, yes. yeah, from a female. Yeah. What is that then? What should we be scared of? Who should we be scared of? Sound like creepy? Yeah, creepy. creepy. Yeah, I heard creepy or something. I'm sorry? I heard you were yeah, you're creepy. Oh, you're creepy. <laughs> they're like, they're like, you guys are down here chasing ghosts. Yeah. Not knowing that they're probably ghosts. That's true. <laughs> Should we go in that back hallway? Walter, can you tell us like what year it is? But before I heard, uh, I heard 20, like 1920. 20? Walter died 1916. Okay. March 28th. What? It's a 20. He was killed on Avenue 20. He was killed on Avenue 20. So he was... Yeah. Wow. He was he was killed on Avenue Twenty. Wow. Oh my goodness. We just got Earlier during our voice box session you heard that we collected yes and creepy. But then later on as we were talking about Officer Walter Krupps, we collected Walt in 20. Lori confirmed that Officer Walter Krupps was killed on Avenue 20. Half of us in that room did not know that. Now here's where it gets really interesting. A week after we conducted this investigation and this voice box session, the museum received an email from a police officer who shared some pictures with the museum. Now, according to his email, he woke up one day and felt the need to go visit Officer Walter Krupp's grave 
and give it a nice good clean. He sent the before and afters of the headstone and Bob and Misha were completely perplexed and in shock that this email showed up in their inboxes. What a coincidence that a week prior, we were sitting in the basement conducting this voice box session and communicated with Kreps. They believe that possibly, judging by what happened that night, he was very happy to make communication and in some way wanted to be remembered. And that's the thing about being a podcaster, storyteller, especially when you're in the true crime and paranormal community. It's always important to share the stories of those that are no longer here. The stories of those who matter. Walter definitely mattered and he lost his life so young. And I believe that this was his way of saying, hey, please don't forget me. After that voice box session, we took a little bit of a break and then made our way to the second level. We decided to go ahead and continue the investigation now in the North Hollywood shootout exhibit. I don't know if it was me or maybe just now entering that room with this bias and this knowing of what could possibly be in there, but my heart was racing and my palms were getting sweaty again. I had this feeling like something was going to happen, but I just didn't know what. We eventually make our way into the exhibit, and it's me, Chris, Matt, and Misha. We set up our gear, and we decide to do a REM pod session. For some of you who don't know what a REM pod is, it's like a little black puck-like device with an antenna. It emits low EMF energy and will alert with both LED lights and an audible tone. It's supposed to let one know that it's around, and you can even ask whatever is around the environment to tap on the antenna to communicate. But whatever was there did not like the REM pod. It certainly liked our energy and it liked to communicate with us in some ways. I felt like it wanted to get us angry. It wanted us to be negative. It wanted to feed off of that. I noticed that some of the men in that room with us were getting very agitated with whatever was there. They were angry at what Emil and Larry had done on February 28th of 1997. But then we noticed that whatever was there was making its own form of communications with us. So is this, is this guy usually in here, this Emil guy, or is he, yeah? Yeah, or by my desk, but maybe not as much anymore. Yeah. And this is the actual gear they were wearing, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Head to toe, except for the boots. Was it the boots? Uh, they look kind of new, but who knows? It's actual. 45 minutes into the REM pod session, and we didn't collect anything. It was pretty silent. Misha ends up leaving with Chris and Matt, and I decide to stay behind. Maybe if it's just one person, one female in the room, me, with the REM pod, something might come forward. But something ended up happening, but not in the exhibit. All right, so now I'm sitting um, by myself inside the North Hollywood bank robbery room with Emil and Larry. Emil, if you're here, can you make this REM pod go off? Thank you. What happened? 
Yeah, TV oh, here we go. Okay, now I need to get So right, okay, so what just happened, it's me, Matt, and Caleb, and Bob, the chairman, and Misha. Bob noticed that the TV in the next room just turned on by itself, and that doesn't happen. So I don't know if they're warming up. All right, Emil, come on. At this point, we're not asking, we're telling. If you're here, we need you to come out and touch one of these devices. There's three out there. You're picking. But if you like to intimidate women, I'm asking you now to come out and touch something so we know you're here. Do something. He's probably going to do something when you least expect it. Watch. Of course he will. You know, I get real tired of loving. It'd be nice for these things just to come out and want to talk on their own. Yeah, we're not talking to anybody. What? Huh? That one right there? Yeah, because I saw it go off for a while and then it came back on. Is now why would that turn on and off? It must be a motion thing. Inside the case? Or would that be something like to signify that someone is trying to open yeah, the case? It could be. It, put, yeah, pressure just... on the, put pressure on the case, Tim. Just a little bit of pressure on the okay. case. I just noticed it went on and yep. on. Yep. That's some movement. That's a movement. I'm just going to tell you that I've been sitting here and I haven't touched this case at all. So for you to notice that, Misha, thank you. Whoa. Oh, okay. so... What you got? So already. Things are turning on by themselves that usually don't turn on by themselves, such as the television that's in the exhibit across from the North Hollywood shootout exhibit. And then all of a sudden, the sensors that are inside the little display where the two mannequins that are dressed in the clothes that the robbers wore in 97, all of a sudden goes on and off. Misha has confirmed that this doesn't happen and in order for that sensor to go off you have to be inside of that display case. You have to be opening that door. There has to be constant movement within that display case itself. Caleb goes over to put pressure to the door, make some sort of ruckus and movement around that area and he notices that with enough force, you can cause that sensor to go off. And we just found it so odd that none of us who were standing anywhere near that case, that sensor was going off. And then all of a sudden, Bob surprises us with something that happened in his office as we were conducting our REM pod session. And you're not gonna believe this. So I was downstairs and I told him I had a book to the other floor, so one of the guys had some photos for me to look at. So I couldn't figure out what photos um, he was talking about. So I'm going through it and all the photos are old, except for one. And the time that this is, I just went I can tell, there. I can tell you're just. <laughs> was this when we were down in felony? Hold on. We were down in felony, you hit the noise up here. Sorry yeah, guys, correct. sorry. So it just dawned on me that uh, something coincidentally just happened. As I was going through the files, all the photos are all old photos of uh, officers, except for this one. This is him <gasps> being That's, taken into custody. Is that Larry? Who, who's that? 
Is that Emil or Larry? Is that Emil or Larry? I don't know. It's like Larry. Yeah. But it just occurred to me, when you, you, when you had mentioned that, I had pulled this out. And I, I didn't realize anything until just now when, when you guys were in here talking about his spirit. And I said, wait a minute. He got shot, he was bleeding out, and this is some moments before he died. Oh my God. Now, isn't that coincidental? And so I'm sitting here thinking, okay, you're in here. That's got to be the photo. I got, I've, I've had goosebumps. I, I have not seen this photo. And um, I just You've not it seen up. that photo? Hold this. No, well, I need I to take a picture of that. Go, go, go. I have this, to take this a photo, picture. This photo was in a stack of, uh, I'll show you what was that. I mean, the odds of me finding it is crazy. I had to go through a bunch of stuff and uh, this one dropped out. Wow. Crap. Do you mind if we set that it right there? It dropped out? The... Yeah. Oh my it's God. It's the only photo. Or no, there's a few others, but it's the only one. Oh my God. Oh my God, guys. I'm sorry to be, I don't mean to be woo woo, but. <laughs> The, Holy the, shit! It just it's six six six, Matt. Are it, you serious? The EDI just went to six six six. Oh, you nasty, nasty boys! Now, when I walked up here with it, something it was over me. I, I feel oh something. Oh, it just turned green. Oh, dude. Well, it's Caleb. because Caleb. It was probably Caleb. Yeah. This. You said you said you had something. Oh my well, god! I feel something on me as I was carrying this up here. This was certainly a very odd and strange chain of coincidences. But what was very odd is this, and just to preface, just to go back a little further before the REM pod session, we were all still in the bottom level in the basement. And I remember Chris and Matt wanted to go to Federal and conduct a little EVP session there. I was packing up with Misha and we were still in the meeting room. Bob was in his office retrieving some paperwork. And according to Bob, he heard what sounded like footsteps and a scuffle in the second level. He questioned everyone to see if we were all in the bottom level, which we were, but no one was anywhere near the second floor. Now fast forward a little more than 40 to 45 minutes into our REM pod session inside the exhibit. Bob finds this folder filled with policeman photographs from the past and in this random folder that just kind of fell out of nowhere in his office is this photograph of whom we believe at first to be Larry Phillips Jr., one of the robbers from the North Hollywood shootout. But more digging actually confirmed that it was Emil that was in that photograph. It's a very chilling photograph. We have it on our Instagram, but you can even find it if you Google search Emil Matasurano. He's laying chest onto the ground and he's bleeding from his head from a wound. He's looking straight at the camera, almost like a little smirk, a little final goodbye. This photograph was taken moments before he passed. It's very eerie. And as Bob was coming up the stairs to present us with this photograph, he mentions in that recording that he felt as though something was with him. Could it have been Emil letting us know that he was behind all these weird chain of coincidences and activity? This time we decided to do another REM pod session, a final one, before I decided to go downstairs to the cell with Manny the molester. This time we ended up going in with Mikey. Mikey had a few words to say to Emil and Larry. We had this conversation before. My buds were out there. 
And then you try to kill Jim DeVorzian at the, at the uh, key shack after you blew that up, after he took a shotgun to you. What were you thinking? Now, report is that five officers committed suicide after that caper because they saw their vulnerability for the first time. What do you got to say for yourself? Are you going to take no accountability at all? Give us a knock on the wall. Rattle the plastic. Show us what you're made of. You guys thought you were so tough to take on the LAPD in a gunfight. And then you come out here and intimidate the ladies who work here. What the hell's the matter with you? You bunch of sorry asses. Come on now. Now you can't make a REM pod light up? Like, if Larry walked up to you right now, what would you tell him? Turn around, put your hand in And I'd want to beat the hell out of him. But being being the officer of the law, the crap you guys caused to this department. It's been going on. Maddie, anything you want to say? I will interject here, but it I think I may have captured another EVP. It's up for you guys to decide, but it kind of overlaps with what Caleb is saying. It sounds like a breathy "let's go," but here you guys can decide. It's been going on. Maddie, anything you want to say? It's been going on. Maddie, anything you want to say? Um. Just got pretty uncomfortable. It did. Drained. I'm just going to say that the temperature was going between 66 to 65.9 as you guys were talking. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't. Oh, they were charging them up. I think they take that anger yeah. and that hostility. They're taking fucking the energy, music. man. Like, they're, they're doing it. I don't know how you guys feel, but. Well, I'm dizzy. Yeah, I, I feel like crap. Like, I'm very pissed. dizzy. Very I'm pissed. Dizzy. Yeah, I'm pissed what with like you. I'm pissed. When they're alive, they sure as hell are not going to follow the rules while they're dead. Yeah, they're not going to give us what we want. They didn't give the cop, you know what I mean? Like, we're just another group of people to them. 65.8. Wait, what? What was that? Yeah. I just heard that. Well, was some, is somebody else in here? That sounded like, a, like footsteps. It's about 9.08, and we just heard what sounded like footsteps or something moving in the next room. They probably got intimidated, indeed. Wow. That exhibit was certainly intense during our RIMPOD session with Mikey, Chris, and Matt. Maybe we just needed those three men just to intimidate a meal out of that room, but it was certainly intense at one point. We were definitely feeling a little dizzy, a little numb, and then we heard what sounded like footsteps next door to us. No one was anywhere near any of the rooms next to the exhibit that we were in, and it was certainly odd. Maybe we intimidated a meal out of that room, It scared him to go into one of the offices. But who knows? I eventually wanted to go downstairs and do one last EVP session, this time in the cell with Manny the Molester. I wanted to see if I could capture at least one good EVP. So I take not one, but two voice recorders. There are two cells that are in the very beginning of the entrance of the exhibit of the museum. And I wanted to put my Sony in the one that was the first cell before Manny's and then keep my iPhone voice memo on in my other hand as I was sitting in Manny's cell. 
going back and forth with reviewing the audio, at first I thought I captured voices, but I debunked them and found out that they were the voices that were carried from another level where Matt and Chris were talking with Bob. But after that 30-minute EVP session inside the cell, I collected nothing. After that EVP session, we begin to wrap up, but Bob decided to show us one last thing. I swear Bob and his surprises. He takes us to the back of the museum, outside. That's where they have the cars. They have all the cop cars on display, the vintage cop cars, a vintage police helicopter, and the armored SWAT trucks. And at one point, from what they told me, they originally had the Bonnie and Clyde getaway car. They had auctioned it off to another museum to have on display. But he ends up showing us the cars that were involved in the North Hollywood shootout. And there they were, the two cop cars that were involved in the shootout right next to the 1987 white Chevrolet Celebrity that used to belong to Phillips and Matasaranu, just sitting there parked. Just by standing next to those vehicles, you definitely got a feel of what everybody went through through those 44 minutes during that shootout. As we were walking back towards the museum to collect our items, we noticed there was a light from one of the rooms within the museum that started flickering. Misha and Bob kind of looked stunned. They had told us that that never happened. Could it be Emil telling us that that was his car? That he's still there once more? Who knows? Several weeks after the investigation, we get an email in regards to the weird coincidence with uh, the Walter Krepp grave. But following that email came another one from Misha, requesting us to come back to investigate again. Except this time, it was going to be on February 28th of 2021. She wanted us to come back to investigate on the 24th anniversary of the North Hollywood shootout. They had been experiencing some strange going-ons within the exhibit. This time it was stronger and louder. So we're going to go back and part two is going to come back with what we find from that investigation. Could it be Emil once more trying to make his presence known? Trying to make communication one more time? Well, you're just going to have to tune in and find out. I guess I can leave you with this one quote that's been stuck in my brain throughout this whole entire investigation and editing of this episode. And it's from one of my favorite paranormal historians. I'm sorry if I don't get this word for word, but it's from Jeff Belanger. History is like ghosts and it demands to be remembered. Thank you so much for tuning in to episode 75 of Getting Holly Weird with the LAPD Police Museum. There's a couple of thank yous that are aligned for some pretty amazing and important people that helped make this possible. 
First off, we want to say a huge thank you and give a huge shout out to our friends, Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott over at LA Not So Confidential. Thank you guys so much for the hookup and your support. We miss you guys so much. For those who are listening and you can't get enough of LA true crime and even, you know, forensic psychology, definitely head on over to LA Not So Confidential. Give them a follow. Give them a like. Tune into their episodes. They're amazing and they're smart and um, they're people that... Bryce and I every day try to achieve to become. So here we are. Another huge thank you goes over to the peeps over at LAPD Police Museum. Misha, Lori, and Bob, thank you guys so much for opening your doors and jail cells to us for the investigation. Thank you so much for your patience, your kindness, and also for inviting us once more to investigate within the museum again. So we'll be seeing you guys very, very soon. Thank you so much for everything that you've done for us. We cannot forget about our other Potter and friends over at Booze and Bros podcast. Matt Lytle and Chris Califf, thank you guys so much for joining us during this investigation. You guys were amazing. Thank you so much once more. And if you're listening, be sure to give them some support. Tune into their podcast, Booze and Bros. They're two bros who talk about hauntings while drinking beer. And I mean, it's two of our favorite things, alcohol and ghosts, having spirits with the spirits. What can go wrong? Many things. So thank you so much, Matt. And thank you so much, Chris. Hope to investigate with you guys very, very soon. Also, another huge thank you to Officer Mikey and Sherry over at Dark Horse Paranormal. Thank you for participating with us in this investigation and walking us through some of the hot spots. We hope to investigate with you guys soon and have a visit at the Marchtime Museum. If you'd like to learn more about the Los Angeles Police Museum, head on over to their website at laphs.org. That's laphs.org to find out when they'll open back again after this pandemic. It's currently closed, unfortunately, but keep tabs on this website to see when they'll open back up. Also, you can follow them on Instagram at Los Angeles Police Museum and on Facebook at Los Angeles Police Museum as well. Speaking of social media, be sure to follow Hollyweird Paranormal at Hollyweird Paranormal on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. You can also follow us on Twitter at HWP Podcast. Have a story you're dying to share with us, no pun intended, then you can forward it to us over at HollyweirdParanormal at gmail.com for it to be considered for our listeners' tales episode. Like the episode? Like Hollyweird Paranormal, we would love for you guys to give us a review and a five-star rating over at Apple Podcasts. It really does help us indie podcasters out, helps us become a little more visible. If you want to learn more about Hollyweird Paranormal, then you can head on over to our website, which is hollyweirdparanormal.com. There you can read our bio, stalk us, catch up with past episodes, shop our merch store, and so much more. If you want to support Hollyweird Paranormal, then you can find us on Patreon. You could go to www.patreon.com forward slash Hollyweird Paranormal. For as little as $1 or more per month, you can help support Hollyweird Paranormal for one, two, or three months. A little goes a long way, and we really do appreciate it. Plus, we gift you in cards, magnets, stickers, and pens, and you'll automatically be inducted into our Saturday Night Ghost Club, which is a secret paranormal podcast society that is exclusively offered to our Patreon members. 
And speaking of Patreon members, we want to give a shout out to a few of our new ones, Sandra Melvin, Whitelock family, Melissa Stone, and Megan. Thank you guys so much for your donations and becoming a Hollyweird paranormal producer. We really do and truly appreciate your help and your support. All right, friends, till next time, be sure to be on the lookout for part two as we return to the Los Angeles Police Museum and participate in our second investigation during the 24th anniversary of the North Hollywood shootout. All right, guys, take care of one another, take care of yourselves, and most of all, stay healthy and stay Hollyweird. Till next time, friends.